Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah. You live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Mark Barton believed that everyone was causing him to fail. He believed that all of his problems were caused by other people, starting with his wife and extending to the people he worked with. Mark decided that he had had enough and needed to take action. This is Monsters. Mark Barton was born on April 2, 1955, to Truman and Gladys Barton, while his father was stationed in Germany in the United States Air Force. When Mark was 11 years old, the family moved to Sumter, South Carolina, where Truman began working as a civil contractor at Shaw Air Force Base. Gladys worked as a secretary at the local Methodist church. Mark's father was said to be a strict disciplinarian. When Truman punished Mark, he wanted to make sure he had made a lasting impression, so the punishments tended to be very harsh. Many kids get harshly punished and turn out all right, but Mark would later write in a note that he had unexplained fears that were transferred from his father to him and then from him to his son. It's unclear what he meant, but something about how his father treated him clearly affected him enough that he justified killing over it. Mark also had lifelong issues with his feelings of being an outsider in school. When he was a sophomore in high school, he spoke to a psychologist about the anger he felt about not being able to fit in. 
The psychologist suggested he sign up for sports so he could be part of a team, but Mark refused, even though he would eventually grow to be 6 foot 4 inches and 220 pounds. Instead of playing sports, Mark started using his intelligence to plan out crimes. He claimed to plan out crime everywhere he went. When he walked into a store, he would observe where he could break in, where the money was, and what he could steal. Soon enough, Mark decided to start testing his plans. It resulted in him getting arrested while trying to break into a drugstore. Mark was an exceptional student academically. He reached the semifinals in the National Merit Scholarship Program and tested well, especially in the subjects of math and science. His interest in chemistry developed after he had taken LSD and heard that the seeds of the morning glory flower could be used to create a hallucinogenic drug. Morning glory seeds contain LSA, lysergic acid amide, which is similar to LSD, lysergic acid diethylamide, it's just much less potent. Mark had heard that the effects could be heightened if they were treated with chemicals. He began testing out recipes and quickly found one that gave him the desired effect. Unfortunately, the seeds themselves can make you sick if you ingest enough of them and when they're mixed with whatever chemicals Mark was mixing them with, he overdosed and had to go to the hospital. Family said from that point on, Mark became paranoid and claimed to see demons coming up through the floor. They said that he was no longer able to read and had to learn all over again, and he became obsessed with the Bible, claiming he had found the answers to all questions. He graduated from high school in 1973, and it may have increased his feelings of alienation that he had never been represented properly in his high school yearbooks. In 1971, they listed him as Jack Barton. In 1972, he had become Mac Barton, only off by one letter, but in 1973, they failed to put his picture in at all. He was only referenced once as Merit Scholar Semifinalist. Mark started attending Clemson University and got through one semester, but had a psychotic episode and had to be hospitalized again. He then began taking an antipsychotic medication and was treated by a psychiatrist for the rest of the year. The next year, he enrolled in the University of South Carolina, where he began working on a degree in chemistry. That specific field helped him learn how to make methamphetamine, which he began selling as well as using. When he was 20 years old, he was caught breaking into a drugstore again, this time probably looking for ingredients for his meth business. He was sentenced to probation. Though it took him a year longer than it should have, Mark graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in chemistry in 1979. Deborah Spivey was born on November 29, 1957, in Savannah, Georgia, to William, who went by Bill, and Eloise Spivey. She was also in college when she met Mark while he was working at a local hotel. They soon got married and moved to Atlanta, and lived there briefly while Mark worked for a company testing cleaning compounds. They eventually moved to Texarkana, Texas, where Mark began working as a chemist for TLC Manufacturing. This company made janitorial cleaning products. He quickly moved up to manager of operations and then general manager. On February 15, 1988, the couple had a son named Matthew. On the outside, they seemed like your average suburban family, but behind closed doors, Mark was angry and controlling. Deborah was not allowed to work because Mark believed that it was his job to provide for the family. On top of that, she had to call and tell him everything she was going to do, and he regularly referred to her as stupid. Not calling her stupid as an adjective, but like it was her nickname. I went out to dinner with stupid last night, that sort of thing. He also started making waves at TLC. He would record all of his phone calls with his co-workers, and he would alter orders from a salesman he didn't like in order to cause delays to his customers. 
He eventually was promoted to president of the company, but his erratic behavior was quickly noticed by the board of directors. He would change formulas without telling anyone, most importantly the clients. He also got caught putting the company's formulas onto his personal computer and got fired. One week after he was fired, Mark broke into the company, downloaded their client list and all of their confidential information, and then wiped the hard drives. He then got into the filing cabinets and took the hard copies of the information he had stolen from the computers. It was less an act of theft for profit than it was an attempt to damage the company. They wouldn't be able to produce their products without the formulas. Some also believe he wanted to hide kickbacks, missing inventory, and the sale of chemicals for the production of drugs. Mark was the first person police looked at. When they interviewed him at his home, he denied knowing anything about the burglary, but said, quote, anybody could have entered through the loading dock door, end quote. The police had never told him how the burglar got in. When Deborah entered the room, he said, quote, they think I stole the formulas, end quote. Again, they had never told him what had been stolen. The only person that could have known that was someone who was involved. Mark was arrested and charged with felony burglary, but soon the company withdrew their claim to press charges and said they settled the matter. The company said they would drop the charges if Mark returned what he had stolen and left the state of Texas. Mark agreed and the Bartons loaded up a truck and left Texas that day. They sent movers back to pick up the rest of their belongings and sold their house from their new location. That new location was Macon, Georgia. While there, they had their daughter Michelle on May 27, 1991. Mark began working as a salesman for a chemical company called Lintec International. It was there that he met Leanne Lang, a young woman who worked as a customer service assistant. They quickly began having an affair. In June of 1993, Mark and Leanne went to Charlotte, North Carolina and had dinner with some of her friends. At dinner, Mark said that he had never loved anyone more than Leanne and claimed he would be ready to marry her by October 1st. In August, Leanne began the process of divorcing her husband, David Lang. She moved into an apartment with her sister. Around this same time, Mark attempted to get a $1 million life insurance policy on Deborah. When the insurance agent asked him why he wanted such a large policy, he told him a story about having been the president of a company and it gave Deborah an inflated sense of self-worth, and she asked him to get the policy. When he realized he couldn't afford the premiums, he settled for a $600,000 policy. On Labor Day weekend in 1993, Deborah and her mother Eloise rented an RV at a campground at Weiss Lake in Alabama. Mark claimed to have stayed home with the children. At the end of the weekend, Deborah and Eloise's bodies were found bludgeoned to death in the camper. It looked like the weapon must have been some type of hatchet-like tool, but it was never recovered. 36-year-old Deborah had been struck in the head and face more than 13 times. 59-year-old Eloise had been struck at least 8 times. This was a very personal attack by someone unleashing a great amount of anger. A purse was dumped out, and it's believed that a few pieces of jewelry were taken, but several hundred dollars in cash was left behind, as well as other jewelry and credit cards. So police believed someone made a poor attempt to make the crime look like a robbery. There was also no sign of forced entry, making it likely that the women knew their murderer. They did find vomit on and around the toilet in the bathroom that belonged to the murderer, which made it seem like whoever had done this may have fantasized about it, but didn't quite have the stomach for it when the fantasy became a reality. When both Mark and Deborah's father, Bill, arrived at the scene, Bill was visibly shaken and the detective noted his face was pale. 
Mark, on the other hand, showed no emotion and almost seemed energetic. When Mark reached out to shake the detective's hand, he immediately said, quote, I've never been here before, end quote, which the detective thought was quite odd. Mark was immediately a suspect. On top of the recent purchase of a life insurance policy, police also knew about his affair with Leanne, but he lied about it multiple times. Then they found a witness who said they saw a man who matched Mark's description asking for directions to the lake just a few hours before when the murders occurred. Police did the math and determined that Mark would have had enough time to get to the lake and back home while his kids were still asleep in bed. Investigators found a small amount of blood in his car, but it wasn't enough for DNA testing at the time. When they went back to check the car again, Georgia Bureau of Investigation agent Sam House said the car had clearly been cleaned. He said the gas and brake pedals had been thoroughly cleaned, but the use of luminol revealed evidence of blood on the steering wheel, the center console, the gear shifter, and the top corner of the driver's door. Inside the house, luminol showed evidence of blood on the garage floor, on the kitchen wall, and in the kitchen sink. Mark would later claim that the blood was from when he had cut his finger months before, but he refused to give a blood sample for comparison. He also refused to take a polygraph test. Though authorities were positive that Mark had killed his wife and mother-in-law, they only had circumstantial evidence and the Alabama police weren't willing to move forward without something more, something the Georgia authorities said that they would have done if the crime had occurred in their jurisdiction. An investigator for Douglas County, Georgia, attempted to gather more evidence for the Alabama police, but he wasn't successful. Not long after the investigation of his wife's death ended, a daycare worker claimed that Michelle, then two years old, had said that her father sexually abused her. Mark was evaluated by a psychologist who determined that the man seemed certainly capable of homicidal acts and thoughts, but he wasn't able to determine whether he had sexually abused his daughter. Due to Michelle's age, she wasn't really able to elaborate on any details, and Georgia's Department of Family and Child Services wasn't able to make a determination in the case. Just like the murder investigation, when they weren't able to obtain any solid evidence against Mark, the case was closed. Investors Life Insurance Company of Nebraska didn't pay out the life insurance policy right away. Since Mark was a suspect in the murders, the insurance company didn't want to pay him at all, seeing as he had probably committed the crime. It took years of fighting, but the insurance company eventually settled with Mark for $450,000. They cut Mark a check for $300,000 and put $150,000 in a trust for the two children. Leanne had moved in with Mark not long after Deborah's murder. Even though people report that their relationship tended to be rocky, they were married on May 26, 1995. They moved to a house in Morrow, Georgia, a suburb of South Atlanta. Mark used his new windfall to quit the chemical business and become a day trader. Day trading is when you invest in stocks at the beginning of the day and then sell them off before trading closes that day, trying to get as much profit as possible. It's possible to make a ton of money in one day, but more often than not, day traders will lose money. The stress of day trading didn't help Mark, who was already paranoid and easily agitated. In October of 1998, Mark called Leanne while she was at work and told her he was going to commit suicide. She suddenly heard a gunshot and the phone went dead. She raced home, but when she got there, Mark was in the living room, perfectly fine, like nothing had happened. She asked him what had happened. What was the gunshot? Mark answered, quote, Oh, I killed the cat instead, end quote. He had shot and killed Michelle's cat and buried it. Then he spent two days pretending to be concerned and helped her look for her pet. 
Eventually, Mark's instability became too much for Leanne, and she left Mark and moved into her own apartment at the beginning of 1999. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul annual appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. Mark had started day trading on his own at home, and sometime in 1998, he met with one of the supervisors at Alltech Investment Group, Brent Dunin, to be trained on how to use their system to trade. Brent described Mark as a seemingly happy-go-lucky guy wearing khaki shorts and a golf shirt. After a training class, Mark jumped right in and began trading huge amounts in a day. Most of the new traders made a couple of trades a day, each for a few hundred shares. Mark was making 10 to 15 trades a day for thousands of shares. He was eventually making up to 50 trades a day. He told everyone around him that he was a seasoned trader and gave everyone the impression that he had more than enough money to cover the possible losses he was risking. He didn't, though. He was risking his entire life savings every day. This was a typical position for Mark to be in. Outside appearances didn't match what was going on in private. He seemed like an experienced trader with the capital to support his risk, but he wasn't. He also seemed like a loving father and husband, talking about how much he loved Leanne, taking his kids to soccer practice, or coaching Little League. The reality was that he was almost as controlling with Leanne as he was with Deborah. Though he allowed her to have a job, he still wanted to know what she was doing all the time. At the office, Brent said he could hear Mark call home and say, quote, Leanne, it's me, you can pick up, end quote and he got the impression she wasn't allowed to answer the phone otherwise. Neighbors would say that Mark wasn't very neighborly. He would usually ignore someone if they waved at him. They also said that his kids were more often playing at a neighbor's house than their own. By March of 1999, Mark had drained his investment account with Alltech and actually owed them $11,000. Mark assured Brent that he would pay them their money and be back to continue trading. The following month, Mark returned to Alltech and told Brent that he had invented a new type of soap and he had made a fortune from it. He paid the $11,000 he owed the company and put $50,000 into his account to begin trading again. This time was no different than the last. He was trying to make big money fast instead of building up his gains slowly like he had been taught. Over the next few months, Mark's account was empty again and this time he owed the company $30,000. He told Brent, quote, I was too aggressive again, trying to recoup massive losses in only a few weeks. Instead of swinging for singles and doubles, I was trying to crush home runs, end quote. 
Mark left the office that day, promising that he would come up with another invention that would get him back on his feet. Brent was surprised at how trivial the situation seemed to the man. That was most likely the problem. Mark acted like nothing was wrong because he wanted people to believe that he was something that he wasn't, so he just bottled up all of his disappointment, regret, and anger. He also hadn't developed a new type of soap. That was all a lie. All of the money he had lost at Alltech came out of the money he got from Deborah's life insurance. In April, neighbors noticed that Mark was having a yard sale, but they realized it wasn't your regular old stuff that you just didn't use anymore. Mark was trying to sell off all of his furniture. He had gambled away all of his savings and was having trouble paying for his house. Though he had told Brent that he was going back to work in chemistry, Mark really went across the street from the Alltech office to Momentum Securities and started trading there. At this point, Mark clearly had a gambling addiction. Even though he knew how to day trade and knew the process of doing it successfully, he couldn't stop himself from dumping too much money into high-risk stocks, hoping for a big payout. He listed his net worth as $750,000, with $250,000 of that being cash, which wasn't even close to being true. But Momentum believed Mark was good for it, so they allowed him to borrow $100,000, which he quickly lost. Then, his own account went into the negative to the sum of $87,500. Momentum had cut him off from trading, and Mark wrote them a check for $50,000 to reopen his account, but the check bounced. At the beginning of July, Mark had lost his house and showed up at Leanne's apartment looking for somewhere for him and his kids to stay. Even though she had already initiated divorce paperwork, she agreed to let the three of them stay at her apartment. On Monday, July 26th, Mark called his attorney and had his will changed so that everything would go to his children. The next day, he lost another $20,000 in stocks. That evening, he went into the bedroom while Leanne was sleeping and beat her to death with a hammer. He tucked her body into the closet so the kids wouldn't see her. Wednesday, Mark took both of the kids to get haircuts and then they went out to eat. They took a trip to Walmart where the kids got some treats before they went back home and Mark put them to bed. In the middle of the night, he went into the bedroom that Matthew and Michelle shared and beat them both to death with the same hammer he used to kill Leanne. He then took both of the children into the bathroom and placed them both face down into the water. In his own words, quote, so they wouldn't wake up in pain, end quote. He washed them off and placed them back into their beds, tucked in tight. He placed a teddy bear on top of Michelle's body and a Game Boy on top of Matthew's. Mark wrote notes that he placed next to all three bodies, asking God to take care of them. He then typed a letter that he wrote on Mark Barton letterhead that he left on the table in the living room. On Thursday, July 29, 1999, Mark called his lawyer and asked him to change his will again, this time leaving everything to his mother. At about 11.30 a.m., Rick, one of the traders at Momentum, was outside about to smoke a cigarette. Mark stepped up and kindly lit the smoke for him and asked him, quote, Are you going to stick around for the bloodbath? End quote. But before Rick could answer, Mark had already walked away. Rick assumed Mark was talking about the horrible trading day it had turned out to be. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 180.79 points. Everybody else was inside, glued to their computer monitors, hoping the tides would turn in their favor. It wasn't until 2.15 p.m. that Mark went into the Momentum offices and asked to talk to one of the managers, Justin Hohen. 
He was out of the office, but the receptionist got him on the phone where Mark told him he'd like to trade again and could wire $200,000 into his account. Justin told him he could trade again if he wired the money and told him he'd be back to the office in about 15 minutes. Mark hung around the office for about 30 minutes chatting with the traders and began getting impatient when Justin still wasn't back. He went into the break room and started talking to a branch manager named Kevin Dial. He told Kevin, quote, It's a bad trading day, but it's about to get worse, end quote. Like Rick, Kevin assumed he was referring to the day's stocks. But when he looked up, he saw Mark holding a Colt 45 automatic and a Glock 9mm. Mark fired both guns and shot Kevin in the heart and the lung, killing him. After the ear-piercing bangs, the entire office went silent. Then, suddenly, everyone started running and Mark started shooting. Andrew Zaprazala and James Jordan were both hit and fell to the floor. James was able to get up and run to the exit, but Mark managed to hit him again in the arm. As James was running out of the office, he ran into Justin, who had finally returned, only to walk into utter chaos. James told him what was going on, and the two ran out of the building. Mark saw two men in an office and fired in their direction. A bullet went through Scott Webb's right lung and lodged in his chest. He also died. The other man in the office was hit twice, once in the back and once in the shoulder. As Mark turned back toward the reception area, he shot at Marcy Brookings but only grazed her shoulder. He then shot Russell Brown three times and killed him. As he walked across the trading floor, he stopped and shot the monitor at the computer station where he once worked. Edward Quinn was shot once in the neck where the bullet severed his jugular vein. Edward bled out on the floor and died. By this time, the flood of calls were coming into the 911 center. People hiding in different offices were all calling to report the shooting, explaining that people were shot and bleeding, describing the gunman, and begging for help. Two men, Joe and Glenn, had barricaded themselves into an office. When four other employees started banging on the door to let them in, they did. One of the employees had found a cell phone and called 911. Some of the other traders started throwing things against the window in an attempt to break it. They tried a monitor and then a filing cabinet, but the safety glass was too strong. Finally, they threw a computer tower at the window and it shattered. The office was too high to jump from, but they started throwing papers from the window to alert the police as to exactly where they were. The police reporting that there are multiple shooting victims in an office building uh, in Atlanta. Thursday, July 29, 1999. It's a blistering hot day, and Atlanta is in the midst of a record heat wave. The afternoon calm of the city's Tony Buckhead section is suddenly shattered by a fusillade from a man bent on massacre. The 911 call is from the office of Momentum Securities, a day trading firm located in an office building at Two Security Center. Where is he shot? In the arm. Upper part of his arm or lower part? Upper part or lower part? Upper what part of the arm is shattered? His left upper arm. By this time, Mark had left the offices of Momentum Securities at Two Securities Center and crossed Piedmont Road. He entered Building 8 of the Piedmont Center and walked into the office of Alltech Investments. 
Like he did at Momentum, he started off his encounter with idle chit-chat. Brent was in a meeting with a new trader, but Mark told him it was important that he needed to talk to him. While he waited for Brent to finish, he drank soda and exchanged pleasantries with some of the traders before going back to the conference room and urging Brent to come out right away. He said, quote, Come here quick, really, you're going to love this. End quote. Brent was hoping that Mark was going to present him with a $30,000 check to repay his debt. Brent and Mark entered the manager's office where two other employees, Scott and Kathy, were already working. Brent sat at his desk and Mark turned around and closed the door. As Brett asked him what he was so eager to meet with him about, Mark turned around and pulled out two handguns. He shot Brent once with each gun. One bullet entered his abdomen and hit his liver, spleen, and diaphragm before exiting his back. The other bullet hit him in the arm. Mark shot Kathy point-blank in the temple and the bullet traveled through her head and out the other temple. Kathy would miraculously survive, but she would lose her sight, her sense of smell, and most of her sense of taste. Did you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence? That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Your friends can tell. Your coworkers can tell. Even your parents can tell. Everyone can tell. So, what makes you think that law enforcement officers don't know when you're driving high? Driving under the influence of marijuana can slow your response time and change how you perceive time and speed. So, even if you think you're fine to drive when you're high, you're not. Because the bottom line is, if you feel different, you drive different. And driving high is driving under the influence. So remember, drive high, get a DUI. Paid for by NHTSA. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. Scott was shot once in the abdomen and once in the wrist. Mark stepped out of the office and when the confused traders saw his guns, they started running. Mark targeted Nell Jones first, but the bullet just missed her head. He then turned and shot Jamshid Havash in the back, killing him instantly. Right near Jamshid sat Yusef Liberzon. Mark hit him once in the head and then turned his gun on Fred Herder, who he shot in the back. Both men managed to survive, but Yusef suffered permanent brain damage and had to relearn how to speak both English and Russian. Fred returned to day trading but suffered PTSD and took his own life on November 29, 2002. Mark walked across the trading floor and found some other traders who were trapped behind their workstation. Alan Tenenbaum tried to hide behind his desk but was shot in the back and died. While that was happening, Dean Delawalla tried to make a run for the exit, but Mark shot him in the back. The bullet traveled upward through his body, exited his chest, and then re-entered in his throat and exited above his left eye. Though the first bullet killed him, Mark shot him a second time in the right buttock. Mark found Joseph Dessert standing by his workstation and shot him once in the arm and once in the chest. He dropped to the floor and died. At another workstation, Mark shot both Harry Higginbotham and Sang Yoon. Harry was hit in the head and Sang was hit in the arm. One of the bullets that Mark fired went through a partition wall and hit Meredith Winnett in the back. All three survived their injuries. Brent was still in the manager's office as Mark was shooting up the office, but he knew he had to do something. He mustered all of his strength and managed to open the office door. Mark was just outside the door, but he was facing away from the office. 
He knew that if he ran from the office, he would be an easy target for Mark, but when Brent realized that Mark was taking aim at a woman right in front of him, he dashed from the office and ran at the gunman with all of his might. He managed to knock Mark off of his feet and the shot missed the woman. By the time Mark got back up, Brent was almost out of sight. Mark managed to squeeze off two more shots which both hit Brent in the left arm. Brent managed to make it down the stairs and into an elevator room where he called the elevator. Vadwati Muralidara had attempted to run to the elevator room when Mark caught up with her and shot her in the back of the head. She died instantly. Brent got into the elevator and saw Mark enter the room, pointing his gun at him, but the elevator doors closed before a shot could be fired. Brent eventually made it out of the building and would receive life-saving surgery for his wounds. As 911 operators fielded calls for the shooting at Momentum, calls started coming in for the shooting at Alltech. It was a confusing situation because both were investment firms and they were both on the same street. The calls from Alltech were being mistaken for calls reporting the shooting at Momentum. Police had already arrived on the scene at Momentum, but hadn't pieced together that there was a second shooting location which allowed Mark to be able to walk out of the office and down the road into the woods. He got into his green minivan and drove away from the scene. It was motorcycle officer John Kaber, an ex-Marine, who realized that he heard gunfire coming from a different direction as he headed toward the Momentum building. He turned around and pulled his motorcycle into the parking lot at the Alltech building and waited to see if he could hear where the gunfire was coming from, but by then it had stopped. As he raced toward the building, he saw a man running out of the emergency exit yelling, quote, call the police, end quote. When Officer Kaber entered the office, he couldn't believe what he saw. He radioed dispatch and told them to send police and ambulances to Building 8 at the Piedmont Center, but he was told that he was in the wrong place and needed to go to 2 Securities Center. He tried to tell them that there were dead and injured people at Building 8, but he wasn't getting through to them. 911 operators were continuing to tell anyone who called from Alltech that help was on the way, but the help was actually going to Momentum. It took 30 minutes for police command to realize that there were two separate shooting scenes. A SWAT team raced to Alltech and cleared the building. EMTs came in and transported the wounded to the hospital. While the injured were fighting for their lives, a manhunt was started to find Mark Barton. A few hours after the shooting, a woman saw Mark get into his minivan in a mall parking lot in northwest Atlanta. She recognized him from the news and she called 911. Eventually, a police cruiser spotted the green van headed north on I-75 and began to follow it from a distance. He didn't want to alarm Mark and put the public in a potentially dangerous situation. Mark didn't speed up. He exited the freeway and pulled into a BP gas station. It's believed that Mark wasn't aware that the officer was following him and was actually shopping for a new vehicle. He circled around the gas station, but when he came back around to the entrance, he saw the police cruiser blocking his way. Another cruiser had pulled up behind him, boxing him in. An officer used a bullhorn to order the man out of his vehicle, but he didn't comply. They repeated the order, but again, no response. As the officers began talking about what their next move would be, a gunshot rang out through the air. Officers cautiously approached the vehicle, and when they opened the driver's door, they found Mark Barton dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. The hollow-point bullet had entered his temple, traveled through his sinus cavity, and exited the back of his head, taking a large chunk of his brain with it. Inside the van, authorities found the Glock 9mm and the Colt 45 that Mark had used during the mass shooting in his hands. 
It looked like he had attempted to shoot himself with both guns at the same time, but was only able to get one shot off. They also found a duffel bag with an H&R caliber revolver, a Raven .25 caliber semi-automatic, and 200 rounds of ammunition. Inside the van, there were several tablets of an antidepressant drug and a large amount of cash. When police arrived at the Stockbridge apartment where Mark had been living with Leanne and his children, they knocked on the door but got no answer. Officers broke the front door down and entered the two-bedroom apartment. The place was quiet, so officers slowly moved into the unit with their guns drawn. Officer Ranky found a typed letter on the table and called Sergeant Brady over to read it. It read, quote, To whom it may concern, Leanne is in the master bedroom closet, under a blanket. I killed her on Tuesday night. I killed Matthew and Michelle Wednesday night. There may be similarities between these deaths and the death of my first wife, Deborah Spivey. However, I deny killing her and her mother. There's no reason for me to lie now. It just seemed like a quiet way to kill and a relatively painless way to die. There was little pain. All of them were dead in less than five minutes. I hit them with a hammer in their sleep and then put them face down in a bathtub to make sure they did not wake up in pain, to make sure they were dead. I am so sorry. I wish I didn't. Words cannot tell the agony. Why did I? I have been dying since October. I wake up at night so afraid, so terrified that I couldn't be that afraid while awake. It has taken a toll. I have come to hate this life and this system of things. I have come to have no hope. I killed the children to exchange them for five minutes of pain for a lifetime of pain. I forced myself to do it to keep them from suffering so much later. No mother, no father, no relatives. The fears of the father are transferred to the son. It was from my father to me and from me to my son. He already had it, and now to be left alone, I had to take him with me. I killed Leanne because she was one of the main reasons for my demise as I planned to kill the others. I really wish I hadn't killed her now. She really couldn't help it, and I love her so much anyway. I know that Jehovah will take care of all of them in the next life. I'm sure the details don't matter. There is no excuse, no good reason. I am sure no one would understand. If they could, I wouldn't want them to. I just write these things to say why. Please know that I love Leanne, Matthew, and Michelle with all of my heart. If Jehovah is willing, I would like to see all of them again in the resurrection, to have a second chance. I don't plan to live much longer, just long enough to kill as many of the people that greedily sought my destruction. You should kill me if you can, end quote. The letter had a large signature of Mark O. Barton at the bottom. As the officers reached the first bedroom, they found 11-year-old Matthew and 8-year-old Michelle tucked into their beds with their faces and heads brutally beaten. Next to Matthew was a note that read, quote, I give you Matthew David Barton, my buddy, my life. Please take care of him, end quote. Next to Michelle was a note that read, quote, I give you Michelle Elizabeth Barton, my sweetheart, my life. Please take care of her, end quote. They entered the master bedroom and found 27-year-old Leanne's body on the floor in the closet. There were boxes placed in front of her and clothes on top of her body, most likely so the kids wouldn't find her. Next to her body was a note that read, quote, I give you my wife, Leanne Van Diver Barton, my honey, my precious love. Please take care of her. I will love her forever, end quote. 
Mark's letter showed a twisted idea that other people had caused him to fail in life. He mentions, quote, the people that greedily saw my destruction, end quote. But none of the people that he killed or even injured had wished for his destruction. Brent Doonan would only benefit from Mark succeeding. Justin Hohen at the Momentum office was clearly a target of Mark's, but Justin would also only benefit from Mark succeeding. Maybe there was competitiveness between the traders, but nobody sought his destruction. Mark chose all on his own to invest too much money in volatile stocks and lost it all. He was even encouraged to not do that again by his managers, something that would have resulted in the opposite of his demise if he had listened. But he didn't. He chose to do the exact same thing again and lost his money. But he didn't stop there. He chose to do the exact same thing again and lost his money. It seems like someone who came from a science field would have known that doing the exact same thing over and over again would end with the same results. But he clearly didn't use his scientific experience during his time day trading. Though he tries to deny murdering Deborah and Eloise in the letter, nobody believes it. He claims that there was no reason for him to lie at that point, but there was. Even after his death, he wanted people to believe that his 1999 killing spree was caused by other people. If he had also killed his wife and mother-in-law in 1993 for insurance money, that meant he was just an awful killer. He wanted to leave a legacy behind of a man who went on a killing spree because he had had enough of the world being out to get him. But it was all bullshit. This woman had done nothing to Mark Barton. Mark Barton breezed in and I said, hi, Mark, and he breezed by and next thing I know, I, I heard popping noises. She had just met Mark Barton two days earlier and had no idea he had just killed four people across the street and would then kill five people inside her office. But I thought maybe a computer monitor was shorting, maybe there was a fire, so I turned to run out and as I was running out the door, I was shot in the back and I fell and I couldn't, I couldn't walk, I couldn't get up. The bullet pierced her back, hitting her spine and several other organs. Meredith needed two surgeries and a year of therapy to be able to walk again. They told my family I had a one in a thousand chance of survival. Police found Barton hours later. He committed suicide at a gas station in Ackworth. When all was said and done, Barton killed 12 people. His wife and two kids were among the dead. Barton lost hundreds of thousands of dollars trading, and police believe that was his motivation for the killings. While the shootings are a part of Meredith's past, she says the event does not define her. I think he was just crazy, and I, I don't rack my brain trying to figure out why. After killing Leanne, Matthew, and Michelle, Mark Barton killed nine other people and injured 13 more. The people he killed at Momentum Securities were 48-year-old Edward Quinn was a retired executive at UPS, the United Parcel Service. He just day-traded as a retirement hobby. 38-year-old Kevin Dial was the office manager of Momentum Securities. He was the son of former NFL player Buddy Dial and had survived a brain tumor just a year earlier. 42-year-old Russell Brown had begun day trading after he left law school to care for his sick father and brother. 30-year-old Scott Webb was a former college tennis champion who had been a stockbroker in Chesterfield, Missouri, before moving to Atlanta and becoming a day trader. When Mark got to Alltech Investments, the people he killed were 48-year-old Alan Tenenbaum was a part-time day trader who also owned a local grocery store. 52-year-old Dean Delawalla was a full-time day trader who had left his law practice the previous year. 
60-year-old Joseph Dessert was a real estate broker who had recently begun day trading. 45-year-old Jamshid Havash had come to the United States after his home was destroyed by a tornado in Iran in 1998. 44-year-old Vadwati Muralidara was new to Atlanta and was a student taking courses in day trading at the company. This incident has remained fairly unknown despite being the deadliest mass shooting in the history of Georgia. It combines the narcissism of a family annihilator and the delusion is what's referred to as an office avenger. No, not one of those Avengers. It's someone who thinks the people he works with are working against him to cause his downfall. Since he killed himself, we'll never get answers as to what was really going on in Mark Barton's mind. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harm in yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. Okay, so, presents. Check. Decorations. 
chick. Christmas clothes. Yep, chick. The turkey. You forgot the turkey. Dunn Stores has extended opening hours over the Christmas season, so you'll have plenty of time to get all those little jobs done. Opening times may vary. Check your Dunn Stores app or dunnstores.com for more info. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather. Predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on. See CertaIreland.ie.